Konbanwa. It's Zach Langley-Tichi. I'm so popular. Tonight we are discussing rape on film with one of my favorite people. Who are you? I'm Emiliano. Hey. Hi, Emiliano. What are you doing? I am sitting in my room drinking coffee. I'm hungover. Same. I've been hungover for like 12 hours now. Yeah, I had like four daiquiris that just became increasingly more rum than they did anything else. And then <laughs> a bunch of beer. So I'm ready. I had to get into character. I need to get into character with daiquiris. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, went out with a few friends last night and I thought it was going to be low key, like an eight to 10 o'clock kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then we ordered a shot at the bar and the old Japanese woman running the snack bar had never served a shot of alcohol before. So (sighs) she just gave it to us in these glasses and uh, expected us to drink them all down in one drink. Oh my God. (laughs) So I took like four shots of whiskey at once and then had like five more beers and then tequila after for no reason. Oh, oh, that is cursed. So... Here we are, 12 hours later. <laughs> um, why are we friends, Emiliano? Why are we friends? I believe that in Oregon, in Eugene, through our friend Ava, or I, th- I think mm-hmm. I was there when Ava's boyfriend at the time introduced you two. Yes. Yeah, and I was just there. I think you were there on that night, actually, which is insane. Yeah, I remember, like... He was just talking. I actually, I distinctly remember this because I totally put my foot in my mouth. Um, Because the like connecting part from like you and Ava was like was Japanese, like like anime or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I remember like, oh, I've like, I just like had just gotten into Karakiro Benito, and I was like, oh, I wonder if he knows about them. And I was like, and you said something about J-pop, and I was like, oh, do you know Karakiro Benito? I think I was on Adderall, and I was like, oh my god, and now like. Now, down the road, I'm like, oh, my, knowing what you know about, like, Japanese culture and media, (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God, could I not have been, like, more of an idiot? I think I was probably a bitch when you said it, too. I was like, that's not J-pop. That's from England. (laughs) Uh, I think you just went, yeah, I do. And then, like, sort of moved on. Oh, no, that's even worse. (laughs) Yeah. But then we talked about Drag Race and then sort of sizzled down. Yeah, I uh, I distinctly remember the first night I met you was when Ava's ex-boyfriend brought us all to a party they had right. at that nightmarish house. Oh, awful. It was like a dirty couch. Like, just looks like crack manifested as a Yeah, I, I think I had, like, I took an Adderall and I think I smoked, like, eight cigarettes on that dirty-ass couch on the, the backyard, <laughs> if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, surrounded with, like, not even frat boys, but, like, ex-frat boys. Because yeah. those are all the ones who've been, like, kicked out or quit. So yeah. it's just, like, the <laughs> most apocalyptic social scene. And uh, we stood there and talked about your Lana Del Rey tattoo for, like, 45 right. minutes. Right, it was, like, my Lana Del Rey tattoo. And then you showed me your wrist tattoo. I was, like, ah, yes. Ah, that person yeah. got it. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, that summer, Ava went to Japan and... Right was like sending us pictures of uh, her and Kimono and you lived in her house with Connor. And I had like not that many friends in Eugene that summer. So I went over there all the time. Um, Connor was constantly asking me where he could get acid. Right. Um, he tried to convince me to go watch the emoji movie with him on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> 
didn't happen. No. <laughs> I think, we, like, I think you would just come over and we would just put on, I think we watched Dancer in the Dark at yes, one point. Yes, we did. I distinctly remember it because Isaiah came over too. Right. And he had, like, never seen, like, um an aggressive art movie like that before. <laughs> <laughs> The way we, like, showed it to him was, like, it's a musical with Bjork in it. Yeah, it's cute. Get into it. <laughs> and then we did. We got yeah. into it. <laughs> oh, my God. That's actually, I think, why we became friends and why we have endured as friends despite um, low contact and uh, several continents between us is because right. up until that point in my social life, I didn't really have any friends who were into aggressive or weird movies or, like, art film it sounds horrible to say out loud but yeah. it's merely true and i was really like cathartically released when i finally like met uh you weren't out at the time but i knew in my heart a gay man who was also into a <laughs> the, the hands went up <laughs> actually speaking of that where we met um like i wasn't out yet quote unquote but like, we, I think we were at Ava's house watching Jersey Shore, and you turned to me and were like, "Which one do you think is the hottest?" And I was like, "Oh, he clocked me, like right then and there." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god!" And then like shortly thereafter, I was like, "All right, I'll just tell everybody." Yeah, I know that there was like a few months because I remember in January when we went to go see uh, the Shape of Water together. Oh and right. Connor and Ava were being gossipy little bitches and um, <laughs> suggesting that we had done something in the car. <laughs> No, we literally just went to see The Shape of Water. <laughs> no, we just had a platonic viewing of The Shape of Water together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then Connor was like, so what's Emiliano's dick taste like, Zach? <laughs> wow. Oh my god. All of this um art movie talk is exactly why I brought you on today, because I think it's an important moment for the podcasting career. This has been something I've wanted to talk about. Since I started, basically, and even more strongly as of late, today we are talking about rape in movies. <laughs> Yay! Oh. <laughs> the lightest subject. Yeah, you were texting me, like, okay, I want to make sure that like, I approach this with, like, grace and seriousness. Um, <laughs> we'll yeah. see if we can accomplish that. I did, yeah, I, like, I just don't want to be like, I don't want to get this huge, you know? Mm-hmm. So I want to, so I'm, I'm, I, I want to approach it with, uh, Caution and purpose. Oh, love it. Caution and purpose, baby. (laughs) I want to talk about rape cinema a little bit because I think that what was one of my entrances into art film and, like, art in general was that in high school, I was constantly seeking out extremities in media. Like, the reason I ever watched Irreversible was because I heard it was, like, the most, like, painful viewing experience and like since I've been young I've had like an obsession with like movies that hurt you and like make you uncomfortable and of course that's fertile ground for the depiction of rape yeah. in film. Yeah I've always like been like a sadomasochist for movies that make me feel terrible and like I, I don't mm-hmm. know why and maybe we'll explore that um it, and it, it's weird that it just so happens that any movie that is supposedly supposed to make you feel horrible always deals with like the emotional torture emotional emotional and physical torture of a white woman yeah exactly because that's my favorite genre of movie is like a white woman getting misused and emoting (laughs) i know if you look at like my imdb like ratings like 
like a majority of the nines and tens are like piano teacher, black swan, L, like just like all of those. And I'm like, yeah, I might have a problem. It it is um, it is something I think appeals specifically to faggots because. I've kind of touched on this in previous episodes, but I I think that because gay men have such an affinity for enormous emotion and wanting to have and see the most extreme kind of feelings because, like, our sexual reality is already so weird, the right. only way we can uh, project onto it is to see women in pain in movies and literature. Yeah, it's like, the whole time I'm like, me, me, like... Oh, yeah. Like, literally watching The Piano Teacher is just a, an ex- <laughs> extreme experience of me being, oh, my God, that's so me. <laughs> like, when she's on the ground and, like, sticking her arm up, like, begging to be picked up. I mean, like, oh. take me. It's like, me. Shit, them. Oh, yeah. Gets me Shit every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that maybe because of that fondness for extremity, I've always kind of had, like, a... A little bit of a disgusting interest in rape in movies. Um, <laughs> and I think it, it honestly does come from the first time I watched Irreversible, which was so shocking to me. And the first time I had ever been like put in place and like slapped in the face by a film. And it's a aesthetic quality of movies that has endured since basically the beginning of film. And... Only recently has, like, rape started to kind of, like, vanish from movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we have L, and I think that was, like, the last movie truly made about sexual violence that is um, not a dishonest attempt at preserving some kind of culture. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't feel... It's, like, one of the only ones as of recent that doesn't feel like it's... um sexual violence for the sake of just having it mm-hmm. like I feel like mo- like a lot of just whatever Blumhouse horror movie comes out will have just oh x villain is a villain therefore he's also a rapist mm-hmm. um so I think L seemed to be like the most most and only like honest portrayal of it in some in, to some capacity yeah it's a pretty absurd movie Oh yeah, it's like it's it's absolutely a comedy, but I mean because it's like willing to be like so black and evil and like <laughs> like humorous about the subject that actually ends up like touching more like truthful reality than those like Blumhouse stuff. But even with like those like kind of cheap like uh, seven dollar movies that you they like I don't know like they pay two million dollars for and then like Blumhouse like shits them out into theaters. It's like. <laughs> Maybe up until 2010, like, that used to be, like, all over the place. And, like, there's always, like, the question of uh, sexual violence against, like, the female victims. But, like, lately, I don't even see that so much anymore. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I don't know what. Well, I mean, I guess the dominant culture is sort of pushing towards, like, maybe they just don't know how to do it, given Mm -hmm. that rape and sexual violence is such a central topic, like, on the Internet and just in in culture in general. So maybe I they just have no idea how to approach it without like not alienating a, a, a money, oh, like yeah. a crop of money. For, so uh, maybe they'll figure it out. Well, cause the, the most recent attempt to figure it out is of course, promising young woman. And uh, I fucking hated that movie. I hated it. <laughs> I love Carrie Mulligan, I, but I sat down and watched the movie and it is a parade of characters, like, speaking tropes. And it's honestly, like, the 
sexual violence prevention courses they do for like incoming freshmen at universities where oh right but it's somehow even more on the nose than that because every single like male character in the movie just like spouts off like the predictable this is what a rapist says kind of dialogue um and it just like culminates in carrie mulligan being a girl boss like the whole time with no no question or interrogation into her motives oh well i will avoid that one you should watch it because it's so bad like it's it's almost (laughs) it's almost good because it is malfunctioning at every level like there's no establishing shots either it's really like clunkily made. Like everything feels like Netflixy digital kind of sheen to the. It's like very disorienting. It feels procedurally generated. There are so many, so many movies that feel like that recently. Mm-hmm. Like I've watched more recent movies, and there are so many that have this just artificial like veneer. It, it, it's so strange. I don't get it. No, I don't even know like where it comes from. Everything feels like a drone shot almost, and. No one yeah. looks real. It's that fake bisexual lighting thing everywhere where every single frame has, like, a little <laughs> splash of neon in it. Like, what's going on? Yeah, everybody saw Nicholas Winding Refn and was like, this is what we have to do. Yeah, and they don't even get that, like, when Refn does it, it's like, kind of like a joke and it's like a big, like, a smarmy wink in your face. Yeah. I think that rape in movies has been i mean obviously like from some like from the silent era it's like always been a question but then of course there's the rape and revenge horror genre that had a grasp on culture for like 20 years and i'm yeah i'm curious like why it appears like so much and why it's been a constant question of like horror filmmaking and everything else especially out of like the 70s like with the exploitative horror genre like i feel like that was a ripe time for exploring that topic given that like 60s and 70s and like second wave feminism was just sort of stampeding into uh to dominant culture mm-hmm. i i guess it doesn't shock me that something like like last house on the left um, i don't know if i introduced that too early and by all um, means oh yeah like something like that was sort of like a ripe opportunity to like take hold of what is being sort of discussed in general and kind of flip it in such a <laughs> uh interesting way and especially given that like uh the parents got the revenge yeah, in the movie exactly yeah no because I, I think that that is honestly like what most like horror filmmaking is doing is it's kind of like reactionary art against uh the culture at hand and as we've seen like as it gets like less bold and it becomes more like a like kind of disney adjacent and like sort of like the what's broadest appealing to be able to get a click on a, a streaming service it's like every horror movie now and like that kind of stuff like isn't even like reacting against the culture but kind of just like sitting inside of it and the only thing i can think of that's pushed against it a little bit is uh um midsummer which shocked me because i thought hereditary was like very like placid and like with the culture but midsummer i thought actually was uh really aggressive against like the cultural moment i think yeah a lot of horror nowadays seems to either like you said be like just sit within itself or just try to like transgress against its own genre Mm -hmm. but like like it's will take a formula of a horror movie that has already existed for decades and then just be like well what if we did this instead like 
and it, it's so disingenuous. Yeah, that's which exactly is why right. I love. Yeah, it, it, which is why I love like all those exploitative horror movies of the seventies. They there's something about them that just feels so like even today, despite their like production being you know low budget, they feel so new and like and real every single time. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're so right because. I think that movies are kind of eating themselves and of course like throughout film history or whatever movies are constantly like remaking themselves and like reinventing and commenting on the whole line of filmmaking but it's gotten gotten to the point where it's like this like really gross sort of like cannibalization and even like Get Out which I think is like kind of a fine movie at the end of the day is like it relies on like so much like genre pastiche and stuff you already know that like if you're not familiar with uh movies it would mean nothing at all whereas like these like 70s exploitation films which often comment on like the same like matters of like race and they are so much more emotionally reactionary and more like from the gut that they end up having an effect that actually lingers whereas like get out kind of i watched it and then it left yeah yeah i i enjoyed get out um but like you said a lot of those older horror movies, they, like, even, like, Night of the Living Dead, having, like, a black man as a protagonist, <clears throat> it was never, a, there was nothing in the script that was, like, how are we going to have this conversation? Yeah. It was just a statement by the filmmakers themselves that made, made it important, mm-hmm. rather than having to explain to us why it exactly is so important that this is happening. Yeah. Um, it, like, things, it, they're never um, concrete. It's never spoon-fed to us, which is like least favorite thing in any movie is being spoon-fed information or or context. Like it, it pisses me off every single time. <laughs> Can you imagine like if they did like the piano teacher, but with like that kind of like contextual speaking where everything has to be explained and like all the motivations are laid out in like a hideous like parade <laughs> of flashbacks. Yeah, or just, like, the, per, like, person on, like, my least favorite trope is, like, when somebody's, like, like, they're clearly alone in a room, and they're just explaining things to the camera, but, like, to themselves. <laughs> and, oh. Disgusting. Which is, I feel like, where movies have gone. Yeah. Yeah, I saw Tenet um, back in, like, September, and the entire movie is action set pieces, which are then followed immediately with two characters walking with, like, some generic landscape behind them and then explaining the plot. (sighs) Unbearable. It's disgusting. And that's why I think, like you said, like, these exploitation movies, and Romero is, like, such a good example because there is, like, lots of really heavy-handed, like, political shit in his movies. Like, oh, God, what's the one in the mall? It's It's not Day of the Dead. What is it? Uh, Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead, right. Dawn of the Dead obviously has all of the mall consumerism. Like, oh my god, everyone's a zombie for shoes. Look at them walk around the mall. <laughs> but because it is uh, more emotional, it actually like does sting and feel gross when you watch it. Whereas like when Zack Snyder did his remake of it and you watch like the same sequence in the in the mall, it all feels very neutered. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, neutered is, like, the correct word for all of that. Yeah, everything is castrated. Like, nothing actually has, like, any genitals to speak with anymore. (laughs) 
yeah, and Last House on the Left and all those other like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those have gigantic like silicone mold balls. Oh like, god. <laughs> they yes. are, their genitals are massive. first movie that we're going to be speaking about in our parade of rape films today is the 1971? 1972? I forgot, but it's Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left. It's 1972. Look at me go. 1972. (laughs) Uh, Have you seen this before I asked you to watch it for the show? Yes, actually. Uh, My dad put it on when I was in middle school. Oh, classic. He just would go on demand and just like like, remember, like, Comcast On Demand would just go to the horror movie section, repeat it, and be like, okay. So I watched it when I was, like, 12. <laughs> um, and and then and then the remake happened, the mm-hmm. Sarah Paxton remake. Um, but then I rewatched Like, I haven't, hadn't seen it since then. Yeah. I guess I wanted to talk about The Last House on the Left because I think it is... Uh, it's a really good example of, like, the rape and revenge genre, especially from its early onset and... I think it has a really, like, biting cultural comment on it that is, uh, like, sort of, like, anti-hippie. <laughs> and, like, the entire uh, <laughs> the entire aesthetic of the movie is this really, like, soupy, weird, tonally bizarre, sort of, like, psychedelic and unfriendly kind of viewing experience, but not in the way that you would imagine any other, like, rape movie to be. Because it's not, like this really apocalyptic sort of dread around it, but there's like a liveliness and like a brightness throughout the movie that makes it really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like they play it off so humorously. Like the first the first like twenty minutes of the movie feels like Easy Rider. Like yeah. it feels like like and then I will say that the inner cuts of the um the police officers just clunkily walking down <laughs> and like trying to tag down a chicken lady. Like I which was so bizarre um but the soundtrack itself it was like really like if you took it away like the scene where the what it phyllis and uh mary mm-hmm. are being like when she's t- like you know telling her to piss herself like if you took all that soundtrack away it would be so dark and like intense yeah but then like i i don't know the decision behind just putting like this <laughs> like i <laughs> The music is such like a inspired choice to me because it does like create that really bizarre mood where whereas like if you're just watching it with like a dark orchestral score that's like you know telling you to feel awful about what you're watching it makes it more like sort of insular and more interior when you're watching it because you have to witness these images that are honestly really horrifying even for the time and 
compare them with that like bouncy music so the feeling of like disgust and nausea i got watching it was like all from me and like not inflicted on me by the movie yeah i felt like i had to question like question my own emotions Mm -hmm. while watching it like why why (laughs) the music is telling me one thing but this the images themselves are telling me another it's this tonal whiplash that like i don't know it transfixes it fixes me like on the you know the murder and rape that is happening over a very prolonged period of time yeah because the the scene when the the movie takes place about a bunch of like a uh, hippie criminals who are like kind of like vaguely associated with like rock music and they uh hijack two girls looking to buy dope on the streets uh who are from the from the town from the countryside they go to the city and they get picked up by these hippies and then they uh put them in the back of a back of the trunk and eventually take them out to uh fuck around with them for a scene that goes on for like literally 45 minutes it's like the whole second act like it's the whole middle of the movie it never stops like once they are out of the car and like in the woods it is just their torture for that amount of time yeah and it like there's no development at all that happens. Like, it only happens once they're, like, they make them have sex with each other that she's, like, okay, now I'll go. But, like, the whole time before that is just, okay, now do this. Now do this. Okay, here's a here's a parents. And then it just goes back and nothing happens other than just torture. Yeah. And the torture, because of the music and the bright light of day that just is, like, suffusing the movie, it's, like, a big green like golden (laughs) movie with all of these like bright vivid colors and you're sitting there watching them like be told to piss yourself okay now make out with her like now take off your skirt and it unfolds with like this like really lethargic slowness and the music makes it so that you have a a very idiosyncratic and unique emotion watching it yeah it's kind of yeah it's kind of indescribable i really don't know it's surreal yeah yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think it is what makes it kind of interesting is because I think that there is sort of like from before the 70s there is a kind of like a banality and like placidity around sexual violence. Like it was before accepted as much more as like a matter of day-to-day life, which is, you know, obviously a, a travesty and upsetting, but it kind of shines through in this movie of like oh, like this just happens all the time. And it has, like, that kind of uh, every woman feel going for it when you're watching it. And the villains themselves, too, I think, kind of date it in that, like, the f- three or four, I don't, I don't know if you would consider Junior the, I don't, the, the son. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're, like, Sadie, the masochist, and then Krug, the rapist. <laughs> and, like, they're very, like, caricatural. caricatural? I don't yeah. know if that's a word, but, like, of of the fears of like i guess boomer like parents um and of like women's sexuality yeah because like i think all the fear is like centered around like the parents and not centered around the two women who are abducted like because if it was centered emotionally from the point of view of the two girls like i think there'd be like a lot more like fear in those you know that that second act but it, a lot of it really is about, like, the anxiety of, like, the parenthood instead, I think. Yeah, and then they really just ham it up for that last bit. Oh, yeah, because once they're dead and it takes forever for them to die, it's, like, 
I I barely even realized it was happening because the the girl gets into the lake to do like the Ophelia scene or whatever. Oh yeah, I was. <laughs> and she like refuses to die while she's just like like keeps like trying to force herself back into the water to show that she's dead. Oh, yeah, I, like yeah, the Ophelia thing. I remember I I gasped. I was like, what? Yeah, Ophelia. Like, it, it's like this. And that's, like, one of the few moments where, like, the soundtrack takes itself, like, really seriously all of a sudden. And, like, you realize actually what's happened. Which is why I think some of, like, the bouncy soundtrack from before that is kind of inspired. Because it does lead to that moment that's actually kind of terrifying when she's dead in the in the water. Yeah. This movie really rewards patience. Yes. Because with its soundtrack and then the really prolonged torture of the two girls... And then, like, where a normal horror movie, you know, those two would, you would follow them up until their death and it's, you know, done. Um, and then you're rewarded with them just happening upon their parents' place, not, like, what, a mile from where their like murder across was? Across the street. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes running and just, like, happens upon it. Like, did you... How, how did this, the the geography is so disorienting. Yeah, it is really disorienting. Like, the fact that they're, like, close enough to a city that it's not that far of a drive, but they're crossing state lines, and then there's a lake, and it's by the house and the street. The cops can't get to the lake because it, it's a half-hour drive, and then they run out of gas. It's, like, all very spatially bizarre. Yeah. <clears throat> and it leads to the, the final hour of the movie, basically, which is the parents of the... Um, second dead girl, <laughs> and she, uh, after her death, the rapists uh, stumble into their house. They uh, use their, you know, lovely rural hospitality and keep them there before they realize what's happened, and that's kind of where the movie picks up into its revenge portion of the rape and revenge. Which, honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that does something like that, like where it's the parents getting revenge. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything else like that. Right before it, it's always like the person being raped or attempted to be murdered is the one who ends up getting revenge I'm, i don't i don't think i've ever seen that before right because it's usually like, stuff like or a again. spit on your grave or you know whatever it's like that that's usually the kind of like, oh yeah because that's much more like in tune with like what you get from exploitation because you get that catharsis of the the victim becoming the survivor right it's in tune with like final girl yeah. kind of stuff yeah yeah and then like the sort of closing shots of the blood splattered parents and the cops finally showing up it it just takes this really forlorn like i don't i think it ended at a perfect yeah. time where it was like what I, like there's really nowhere for them to go like what cuz they're they have this sort of house of hospitality in in nurture nurturing for their child to which they then nurtured their child's murderers mm-hmm. Um, there's just sort of a glow and a a happiness just d- drained out by the very end. Yeah, it's exhausted at um, the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that the violence that leads in that revenge scene is, like, really over the top. Like, she bites one of their dicks off. <laughs> yeah. Or th- she starts by just zipping it through his pants. Yeah. And then bites it off. I couldn't <laughs> yeah, she, and then she like spits it out yeah <laughs> oh and then like he, I, I just um go ahead 
Oh no, I was just gonna like the the dad's a lot like sets up this Rube Goldberg Home Alone esque traps with like the copper wires. Yeah. And then, like, it doesn't, like, really go anywhere because then it's a chainsaw fight instead. <laughs> I think because the <laughs> the guy tries to leave and he op- tries to open the door and falls over. Um, yeah. But then he just gets up. And, and then it just moves on from there. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is, like, littered with, like, little failures and, like, these bizarre moments of that are, like, kind of truthful. Like, and it makes, like, the banality of it and, like, a lot of the kind of weird complacence going on it makes it really impactful like you said for that last shot where it is like they're just so fucking drained of this whole experience and they're sitting there just coated in blood yeah while the policeman fight like the irony of the policeman finally arriving yeah the the bumbling (laughs) cop donuts (laughs) and the chicken lady can we talk about the chicken lady that was so absurd we gotta talk about the chicken lady (laughs) i where does it come from? I don't know. Really, most of this movie, you could be like, where did this come from? Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> I have, no, like, no analysis of it. And I think it's, uh, might be because this movie was supposed to originally just be porn. Like, it was, uh, originally just set to be a pornographic film, but they, they realized with the script that they were going to do something a little more serious, if you want to call it that. But there's all these, like, softcore porn elements that are just like lingering in the film yeah yeah i feel like the music is like the chicken lady the music (laughs) (laughs) and of course then at the credits it smashes to a like a here's each actor as their character and has like this jovial music like showing the rapists being like endearing and cute as they're like running around the street (laughs) yeah it felt like um uh, it, it almost felt like a multiple maniacs, um, f- like, disjointed humor. But it, like, mm-hmm. but there, there's something about the movie that's, that does not suggest to me that it's trying to be humorous. I, no, you're exactly right. I, I think the movie's intention is not to be humorous at all. And I, I don't really think it's humorous myself either, even though, like, the effect is really puzzling. But it has that John Waters effect you know, like Pink Flamingos, which also has like a ton of rape in it. It's like that movie is much more like uh, straight faced as a comedy. It's like more intended as a comedy, but then those moments of violence like do kind of like freeze you in place. And this is kind of like that, but just as like a whole feature where that's like the main goal of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Mm hmm. And you'll never see anything like this again. Like, th- this was made one time and never will be again. Yeah, except for the remake, which I i don't really remember anything other, other about it. I think the, one of the girls survives in the remake. There's a microwave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Gremlins microwave? Like some, yeah, they, they put... Like, I think they put <clears throat> one of the um, rapist's head in the microwave. Like, they uh, tie him to a think of chair or something and put his head in a microwave god Never great again. stuff <laughs> yeah just let just let the yeah, just let the original do its own absurd trip yeah it's much more meaningful more meaningful trip, more meaningful trip, trip, trip.
Irreversible, as I've mentioned, is the movie that basically engendered my love of uh, extreme, angry, sickening movies, and is probably my favorite rape movie ever made. Yeah, it's up there. Casper Noe knows how to do that. He sure does. How did you encounter this? I want to say the same way I encountered uh, Michal Haneke, Michael Haneke, but I, mm-hmm. whatever, however you pronounce his name. I many many years ago went through like a, a big movie kick I was like I'm gonna be a film buff and I was <laughs> kind of getting bored of the same American releases over and over I'm like so I'm gonna check the international circuit and I think I just I think when you just like foreign films if you just look it up I feel like irreversible is you know it's one of the ones that people reference and I read about it being one of the most extremely difficult viewing experiences you could ever have in your life. I was like, Mm -hmm. "Ah, I have to watch this. And it's true. It is extremely difficult to watch. Like I have seen this movie, I think six or seven times because after I watched it by myself, I was so shocked and just kind of fascinated with the physical sensation I got from just like sitting down, seeing a movie that I immediately felt like a responsibility to show it to as many people as I could. So (laughs) In college, I used to show it to anyone who I could convince to watch it. And my preferred method of showing it to people is for them not to know about the rape going in. That's, yeah, that's kind of like the like altarpiece of the movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, the altarpiece is, is, I mean, that's what it's known for. It's like probably more people have like Googled like Monica Bellucci rape scene than have like ever thought to watch like the whole film. But it is like really the central piece that the whole thing sinks on both like in terms of like marketing and like the actual viewing experience yeah it is super long too yeah like, it's it like is... two and a half hours i think yeah oh, the rape well scene? i mean it's a... yeah the rape scene is oh yeah like it it drags eight minutes i think no cuts <laughs> yeah this movie is told backwards in chronology for anyone who hasn't seen it before and it begins with the revenge and goes to the rape and then shows like the sort of like virginal innocence um, before that. And the lead up to the rape begins with one of my favorite moments of cinematic violence ever, which is the mistaken faggot getting his head crushed in by the fire extinguisher. (laughs) (laughs) And we're already like, so like tuned into the violence at that point that you watch that scene where, uh, the scorned lover is like trying to get revenge on behalf of his um, battered, raped partner. And uh, that scene is so shocking in the beginning that you can't imagine it gets worse. And then it does. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It just was. Oh God. That's the only way you can describe it. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. No, it has just a, a way of just, engendering total and complete like discomfort that Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think other directors who you know are equally or do shocking movies 
mm-hmm. can do. Like even climax, just like the way that I, I felt, you know, however long, two hours of horror mm-hmm. and dread from something as simple as a dance movie. And even something like Irreversible, which just, just follows a woman or just follows somebody's life, does it in such a like horrifying way. Yeah, because I think some of the most like abject and painful moments of the movie, I mean, the rape scene that you have to sit down and watch, and I showed it to some straight friends and one of them threw up. So, it, like, it is that bad. Uh, but the following scenes where we kind of, like, watch her before the fall, and, like, we see her, like, you know, lovingly interacting on the train with her friends, and when she's sitting at the park reading, it's, like almost more painful than the actual rape scene because like you know what's going to happen to her and it's so visceral yeah i think the chronology is certainly like the most impactful part of how the story makes you feel and how the the movie makes you feel Mm -hmm. um i think if it it had just been played straight it just it would just sort of be exploitative and gross whereas um i think telling it in reverse um just feels more, like you said, like seeing her, like knowing exactly what's going to happen to her is, is very, uh, it's meaningful. It, 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 it just, upsetting. it hits yeah. harder. It hits, hits very different. hard. And I, I, in kind of the same way that I think like the last house on the left kind of endures and is like a magical piece of art for it's like weird grading, like bluegrass music. <laughs> like the, <laughs> irreversible remains and like kind of transcends like a exploitation level stuff because of that inverted timeline you're exactly right yeah and the music too like plays off like the like the the ending shot with uh the kids in the the grass Mm -hmm. is it just the camera just spins around into mayhem well i think beethoven plays yeah it's beethoven like yeah and it doesn't feel cheap. Like, it doesn't feel like, um, oh, we got to put classical music over this. Um, no, No Way is, like, the master of, like, employing music in his movies. Like, with Climax, like, that soundtrack is perfectly scored. And anyone else, like, putting, like, Window Liquor by FX Twin in a movie and, like, selling it <laughs> is, like, impossible. I could not believe that it works so well with him. <laughs> and, like, that inspired choice of Beethoven plus, like, the nauseating Thomas Bangalter score where they're just trying to get you to vomit the whole time. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. It, I, and I like how like um, Irreversible just feel, feeds itself directly into Enter the Void. I feel like mm-hmm. all of his movies just like thematically lead into one another. Yeah. And, and not in sort of like an extended universe type of way, but just they feel like a coherent artistic repertoire. Yeah, absolutely. And even like, with love in the middle of um, Enter the Void and Climax, I I think that movie is actually elevated from, like, the rest of his catalog. Like, it makes sense, like, with everything else he's doing. Yeah. Huh. Now I'm thinking about Climax. I know. I'm thinking I about that. that da- about Climax. I think about every opening dance. The dance scene. <laughs> the opening dance scene. I, yeah, I listen to that on my way to work and just, like, oh, I'm duck walking. Like... <laughs> Yeah, you get to be pussy pussy cut when on the way they yeah. listen to the climax soundtrack. I sh- when I showed that to my boyfriend in theaters, um, I I was asking him for his thoughts, and the first thing he said was like, "Oh, the dancers were really good, very talented." <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, good, they are dancers. Yeah, they sure are. I 
I mostly love Irreversible because of the extremity of like that that central scene and beyond it just being disgusting and horrifying because I mean we we mentioned it but we haven't like really explained like just how bad it is but to nail it into the viewer the camera does nothing but move in very slowly to the point that you can't even see it on a scene of anal rape with uh lots of hitting and um verbalizing on both sides that's very realistic and not performative at all and the experience of having to withstand that scene for so long is sublime honestly like you (laughs) you exit that scene and you are a stronger person than you were before yeah it like it changes you as a person Mm -hmm. um which i'm sure is certainly the intention um i'm not like a loss for words i don't know like how else to really drive it home there's no way to just just drive it home which is like kind of um in tune with the theme of the movie time destroys all things like right yeah (laughs) you can't like feel about you can't like put the physical sensation of it like just into words like so easily which is why it's like one of my all-time favorites it's one of my like 15 five-star movies yeah like a time like the time destroys all things like it certainly heals no wounds because i i have left like scarred like years Mm -hmm. later from it um not as much as Monica Bellucci's character might be, but... Um... <laughs> no, she's done for it. Like, I, when you see her corpse, like, revealed, like, in the beginning... Not her necessarily her corpse, but, like, her barely living body, where, like, uh, her face is, like, unrecognizably battered, and, like, she's, like... They're, like, oh, like, she's in a coma. Like... <laughs> she's not here. No. And the fact that you just see, like, that... You see exactly how it gets to that point with no breaks and no flinching is just unre- like unrealized in any other rape film ever made because so much of like the exploitation stuff is, you know, kind of the I'm going to try to be artful about this. It's like kind of like the glamorous rape, you know, where it's like the really like well made up like beautiful girls and like p- half of the of the rape scenes that we've seen in like those exploitation movies is like appealing to the innate like male creepy drive to do that kind of stuff whereas like irreversible denies you of all of that completely yeah a lot of other like rape scenes like even though you're watching it knowing very well it's rape it's still like the direction is you know she's usually gasping or making some noise that makes it feel pornographic and not mm-hmm. like like oh it's just two people playing you know um mm-hmm. and like you said it, it like it just feels like it's playing into someone's sexual fantasy um whereas irreversible like i don't know what kicks like there's gotta be somebody who gets a kick out of that but oh yeah because like, people look it up like, they, they, I know that, because it's, like, there's, like, a 12-minute, like, video on, like, Vimeo or something if you search, like, Monica Bellucci rape, like. Yeah, I might, the people might look up that more than Monica Bellucci herself. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, which I think says something about the movie that, like, you could really, like, the, that scene in particular is sort of withstands time. Like, the movie could just disappear and all that is left is that. Um, 
and it like it I don't know I just I, I question why it is like so culturally like has such a stranglehold over like cinema and people who just culture in general mm-hmm. something so difficult to watch has such a like eminent force I don't know yeah well I think it might be because Irreversible is one of the only films that's ever like shown rape at that level of horror. I can't think of anything else that is so aggressively putting you in the position of Monica Bellucci's character as she's like there in that beautiful dress. Like when <laughs> it just is like you have no choice but to like feel like her. And so much of like other rape cinema is putting you in the position of like the rapist or as like the voyeur instead of irreversible that is like firmly grounding you as her right yeah yeah and once again like once again to bring it back to like last house on the the left i think that's kind of like why i am so infatuated and like entranced by that movie is because like it also has like that weird angle of who you're identifying as because there is like the porny element where you can kind of see someone getting off to what they're watching in front of them. But because it is like rooting you so seriously as the parents, you have like a different reaction to it than you would from to a typical rape scene. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what makes rape, rape in movies. Like if you can play it off well, what makes it like, not just like exploitative gross, like, why am I watching this? Is if you can ground it in some sort of reality that maybe you don't always have to be the one, like see yourself as the one being raped, hopefully not, but you, right. you can see it from like, a, like an emotional ripple that sort of permeates throughout someone's life when something as horrific as that happens. Like in the case of Irreversible, you're, you're being put in Monica Bellucci's place. So that's what makes it even more horrifying is that you're seeing it not only as sort of this like extended arm's length scene or you're not seeing it through a parent you're seeing it like through her as yourself um on the flip side last house on the left seems to like you know it it plays so much off of the parents fears and i think that's what makes i think i'm just repeating myself now but um but yeah i don't know how to finish that no that uh, you're so you're so right like because it's like slipping you into that different role like it has like a different effect and the way you describe it as ripples is so good because the way that the rape ripples through lassos on the left is like in those like psychedelic uncomfortable like bluegrass songs whereas in <laughs> irreversible it's just as like the actual physical torment of it yeah it 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 doesn't play it off as though it's just a it's not a plot device or it's mm-hmm. not it's not a character trait it's it's um a central focus that mm-hmm. changes the characters and changes the viewer you know it, it like both tonally emotionally and physically you know in the case of people getting sick watching irreversible yeah <laughs> literally abject yeah yeah it's it's i think what is the power of like what good filmmaking around like rape can do because you know, there is obviously a fascination with it throughout human history, and culturally, rape has been going on in, like, all literature forever, and with, like, the visual element and watching a, a movie, which is already, like, its own sexual experience of, like, voyeurism to, like, sit and have to watch things be presented to you, I think, like, it's important for movies to, like, work with 
themes of sexual violence because it is such like a hang up of all human beings and a fear for women and gay bottoms, you know, like it's like yeah. a driving cultural fear. So when films like Last House on the Left and Irreversible can do something with your perspective or like your viewing experience, it becomes kind of transcendental. Dogville is the 2003 feature from Lars von Schreer, part of his um, Land of Opportunities trilogy that was uh, never finished, but is among Irreversible, one of my earliest uh, kind of exciting exposures to sort of like cinema of rape, and I think is one of the best and most uh, useful employments of sexual violence in any movie ever made. Yeah. Yeah, Dogville is... um... It really stands out in his uh, filmography. It, it's, it does. it's so different, um, especially because he like co-created that um, manifesto with another Danish director. I think it's oh, called like dog the dogma, the dog dogma ninety five movement. Yeah, which like if you read the rules that they set in place for that, Dogville follows almost none of them. Right, like like the totally artificial sound and uh, set like. The, I think one of them is like no murder, <laughs> no murder in Dogville. <laughs> um, yeah, but I we I rewatched it last night because um, it's been years since I've seen it and like, and I, I, like I said earlier, like regardless of what Lars von Trier does as a person, like my God, he just he just I don't he just knows how to do and make something that, like, fascinates me. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. I will watch everything he puts out, no matter what act of violence he does on his actresses or, like, what, like, Nazi sympathy jokes he makes at can. Like, every movie I've seen from him hits you in the face, and I love each and every one of them. And I think that Dogville is, like you said, kind of an outlier in his career because it is very against type of a lot of the rules that he has for his movies like dogma 95 considered or not and it's for a film that is very politically and like thematically verbose but even not considering any of that you have nicole kidman here looking glamorous even as she's like wearing those like plain clothes like headscarves and like running around like a little Russian woman <laughs> like yeah. but she, she is so powerful in this role about her um a runaway daughter of the mob who uh, takes shelter in Dogville and slowly finds herself getting literally raped and also figuratively by the population of this American town in like the 30s yeah a town that she like thought would be 
like, or I guess it's played as, you know, we don't necessarily know who or where she's from, but we, it, Dogville sort of played off initially as this refuge, like, quaint, nice, like, own, um, mm-hmm. who, who's there to help her. Um, so I, Von, Von Trier must have some, uh, like, I don't know what his feelings about are about rural America, but they're clearly not kind. No, I mean, this movie is furious at America, and there's no way to get around it. Like, uh, yeah. half of the movie is kind of about this moralizing, self-described philosopher, uh, Tom, who uh, takes in Grace, uh, played by Nicole Kidman, and his relationship with her is, like, largely based around, like, this uh, American movement of reinstating morals in the community and it is played off as this like huge dumb joke and uh then of course at the end of the movie if like the american sentiment wasn't clear enough it plays young americans by david bowie against a bunch of images of poor people oh yeah that yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and chloe seven you i like i rewatched i was like oh my god chloe seven you's in this yeah, hell? just inexplicably in this movie. I didn't even realize when I watched it the first time that it was her. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that I this you you might not actually characterize this on you know first viewing as like explicitly like a film of sexual violence, even though it is like a prominent feature that like, happens throughout the movie. But in comparison to Irreversible and Last House on the Left, it's like much less centrally a part of the story at first but i think what this movie is actually saying is a lot about how the relations of power and how one interacts with others and having to constantly submit or to dominate to another is just like a huge form of sexual violence that everyone has to experience in their daily life and uh, is enshrined in america as our central governing force yeah, and I think um, the visibility of, of submission, violence, and, and sexual mis- violence um, is sort of played off in the movie in that, like, this, the stage itself with no, there are no walls, there are no doors, except for a select few, and there's there's one shot in particular I'm thinking of where um, it's just a, a shot of the town, and in the back you see Stellan Skarsgård just, you know, raping Grace. Um, yeah, with his whole ass out. Yeah, his whole ass, and then eventually his balls, like, you can see them. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that when I was watching today. I'm like, oh, they, they just put Stone Scar's balls right there for us. Yeah, but, like, that shot in particular, like, was really, like, impactful for me in that it, it like, sort of uh, demonstrated this visibility of, of, of power imbalance and, um, and, uh, and rape. Uh, things, topics that are so prominent in American culture, yet are kind of continually pushed to the side mm-hmm. to, like, which is kind of the American... Uh, way of dealing with things is just yeah. sort of settling. We we can't talk about it, um, and I think the the setting itself, the the stage, like was like a brilliant choice to explore that that notion. Yeah, absolutely. Because everyone complains about, especially people who aren't into like art movies or whatever. Like people really have a hard time getting over the fact that this movie is three hours long and is like a minimally dressed soundstage with chalk and no walls and uh, light. And like, that's about it with some props. Uh, But 
I think you're exactly right that it is this big illustration of what American power dynamics looks like. Because obviously we talk about rape all the time. And ever since like Me Too, it's like the only thing any celebrity has anything to say about basically is, you know, reporting another for sexual violence. But the nature of how Americans talk about rape and these kinds of issues is like bringing it up and discussing it but never actually addressing it so it's like exactly like that scene of grace getting pounded by stellan skarsgård's bare ass is like it's so visibly there and everyone's aware of it but it's never actually getting touched by any meaningful discourse yeah and i mean it eventually she's blamed for all the problems um which which is sort of true of you know real life discussions of of rape um and like her presence is such a disruption to um a seemingly normal town uh I, yeah no that's exactly right like she's such like, a good disruptive force but from the beginning of her arrival just like her desperately finding like trying to find something to do and like ways to help people like she's such like an alien element but everyone is so clearly aware of the differential and power between her and the rest of the town. But until she starts getting like visibly abused and like chained to a wheel, it's like you don't actually see anyone doing anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. With her bell. Oh my God. The (laughs) bell, the little dinging bell by her face. I, it is amazing to me that, like I think that actresses like love to do this kind of stuff where like they are put into like these intense like horrifying mortifying difficult roles where they have to wear a bell and like carry a chain around because it's like such a thrill to have accomplished it. Yeah, that's why I love any actress. Like maybe that's why it's my favorite genre, like emotional torment of a white woman. Is like I, I'm so fascinated and interested in any actor that's willing to take roles that don't glamorize themselves or um it's not always empowering in fact it's always mm-hmm. many times it's demoralizing yeah uh, i i'm always impressed by an actor who an actress who can like slip slip into that and do it so phenomenally like nicole kidman yeah and she refused to reprise the role um for the sequel to this and had like a lot of disagreements with lars von trier and i i don't really like know her recollections of the movie going forward but regardless of like what pain she had to go through to like make the movie like the movie has been made and her performance is like one of the most glistening parts of it yeah the, her in the apple orchard like a uh, truck just like mm-hmm. laying there like i was just like she could just tell so much just by like looking around um in her uncertainty and fear of going back to dogville yeah I'm curious of what you think about the resolution of this movie because we have like seen the huge power indifference and then we see when she's literally chained to the wheel and then becomes the local cum dump for town and all the men go and like fuck her when she's like trying to sleep at night and it ends with her um the town has reported her and brought the mob back in and she chooses to burn down dogville and kill everybody in town and i'm curious like what you got out of that like on surface level it's certainly very uh cathartic yeah um like 
it's sort of like a uh what, what do they call it like a, a good for her moment yeah it's um, a very girl boss yeah um but i guess more than that she her origins up until that point were sort of unknown she's just a girl mm -hmm. running away from something terrible but in fact turns out she is part of that terrible um is like it's kind of sick mm -hmm. but, like like dogville as a town was you know filled with terrible people but you know she was not necessarily i mean she was a victim in the town but not necessarily in the wider scope of of her life right um and just use chooses to weaponize like her character almost just completely reverts back onto itself because the idea was that she was running away from her father and trying to reject that life he led and she just sort of falls back to it she weaponizes it to kill the whole town and kill the kids in front of her in front of their mother um yeah it, you can it's, it's kinda, uh, you can save sickening. the kids if you uh if the mother doesn't cry yeah yeah that's like part of like where yeah it calls back to her earlier figurine moment mm -hmm. um yeah it's almost like it's kind of sick like it, there there really was no like um like real resolution nobody really changed right it goes exactly back to the start and i think that's a a really impressive accomplishment that trier is able to actually say that because it really does have that like veneer of like cathartic oh you did that girl like you got them you shot them but <laughs> then when you watch the credits and see the cascade of poor people like smoking and weeping with each other during the depression it's like you realize that her actions seem to have like temporarily have resolved one issue and like she was able to overcome like the sexual violence and the power differentials but it's not actually a sustainable way of like solving the larger issues of power in america like you can't just like blow up the country yeah, it, and it like highlights just how much American life is just about cannibalizing each other's um, livelihood, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the shots of I think yeah the all the, the images of the rural America Dust Bowl era <laughs> people um, sort of drives home how much how shitty it is to be in the United States. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I think that's why I find the ending like so fascinating that like, it doesn't just like say like, fuck America, like blow it up and call it good. And is actually kind of like scowling at that idea a little bit, because as we like do look for solutions to the American problem, like a really basic reaction for a lot of people now is they want to be like, quote anarcho communists unquote and they want to do like this like fake activism where they really believe in a in an anarchy of some sort but the only thing it leaves you is with the barking dog in a burnt down town and nobody gets anything out of it yeah yeah there's there was no growth there's no um like moving on to a different um ideology mm -hmm. it's just just falling back into itself which is kind of scary, but just the, you know, in life is just sort of an endless spiral into a singularity. 
like it's capitalism is just run so rampant that there's really nothing no anybody can do and even what seems so cathartic as you know burning down the town that has wronged you so so deeply like ultimately leads to nothing Mm -hmm. yeah like that bombastic show of like oh this is how we're going to save this is how we're going to solve these problems it actually is completely futile and useless and i think it's a very strong testament to this movie as like sort of like a perfect rape film basically is because it really does like show like the meaningless that comes after one experiences like something that traumatic and horrible is that like an act of revenge is not going to solve what's happened and uh i guess someone could complain to trier that he doesn't provide another avenue or like an answer but that like last like john hurt like quote is like you're not going to get your answers here so yeah yeah and it's just like just sort of explains and, and sort of on Trier's sort of nihilistic existentialism. Just, you're just ultimately very powerless to the, um, to the dominant force that sort of runs your life. Um, there really, like, I, I feel like his answer might be that there really is, there is no answer to it. It's just, we're just going to kind of continue in this endless cycle of, of horror. And our final film of the night is a grand play on Dante's divine comedy, uh, as told through the Marquis de Sade. It's uh, Pasolini's Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, from 1975. How did you see this movie? I randomly, I like again, sort of like Irreversible has a notoriety behind it as mm-hmm. one of the, like, Irreversible... I, I want to say Solo and Irreversible are, like, tied for, like, the most difficult movies to watch. Yeah. Like, especially watch multiple times. Um, so I, I knew that notoriety. And then I think Criterion was having, like, a sale. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, buy Solo. And then I did and watched it and was like, oh, my fucking God. What the hell? Yeah. I, like, <laughs> I think I wanted to buy it because I'm like, I wouldn't be shocked if at some point people find more people find out about it and are like this needs to be effaced from history so i need a physical copy yeah it's essential to have a physical copy of this because i don't have one and to rewatch it for tonight i had to scour the internet and it took like seven hours of research to find a okay quality stream on the internet that was in italian with english subtitles yeah yeah it's i'm very lucky i i got it yeah i'm glad you Um, did in print Everyone should own more print copies of everything. Jack on the Perfume National says this all the time, but like it is so important to own the physical items of things you want because they will be scrubbed off the internet one day. Like the deal with the devil to do streaming services is not going to get you anywhere. 
no yeah i i scour goodwill like for dvds they they cost two dollars and like i found most of my movie collection is just will dvds and i'm very happy to have my uh archive yeah your criterion library yeah, yeah of which solo is proudly displayed oh god and i just this is like you said an extremely <laughs> difficult viewing experience and um once again kind of like dogville not by genre really like an exploitation rape movie but a film that i think basically swallows the entire essence of what it means to be sexually violated and installs that for the entire artistic experience of sitting down and watching the movie it's almost like comical like yeah where is it reversible i sort of i've like had to go take a shower like solo i had to like <laughs> i just kind of had to laugh through it because it's just so absurd mm-hmm. like, it's non-stop like the beginning sort of like establishes a little bit of what's going on and then it just sort of like Pasolini just kind of flicks his gives a snap and it just blows up into mayhem yeah and the movie follows a bunch of uh, fascists during the Mussolini era who hijack a bunch of twinks and skinny girls and uh, then forces them into a a uh, very regulated pageant of debauchery for the rest of the movie where they are tortured, um, killed, sodomized, married off, um, all matters of gay rape, um, shit eating, it, the list goes on. And of course, like the by the numbers, like list of all like the monstrosities that happen here is like interesting, but some of the most disgusting moments in the movie aren't even just like the oh my gosh, she's eating shit. But it's like the general light, oppressive mood about the film. Yeah, what, the, the inner cuts of the, the older prostitutes lovingly telling stories about their horrific sexual exploits. Yeah. Like, feels so balletic. Mm-hmm. Balletic um, is exactly it, yeah. Yeah, it feels, yeah, it feels like a dance. The whole movie feels like I'm sort of constantly being waltzed, like I'm doing the waltz against my will. Um, <laughs> and like because it, it, it's cut into three parts right it's like a circle yeah, of blood I think it's like of... four chapters or something it's like a prologue and then it's like circle of blood then it's like circle of shit circle of yeah. something else oh yeah, god okay, I just looked it up the, fir- the first is the anti-inferno then it's circle of uh, manias uh, circle of shit, oh, right. circle of blood. Got it. <laughs> Boom. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it is really dance-like and balletic, but the the tone, also kind of like Last House on the Left, is like very bright, and it, not really t- until like towards the end of the movie does it actually become like tonally punishing like at first it really does like feel kind of like airy and weightless and then it just like shoots you with like the acts of sodomy but the overall effect is this really confounding sort of contradiction between like what's happening and how it's being presented yeah visually it's it's well even visually it it like while witnessing um horrific scenes of you know shit eating um it still is like it doesn't feel as heavy as 
as what I'm viewing. I don't. I guess that they come from like the lighting and the costuming. Mm-hmm. Feels very like it feels like I'm watching like a remake of or like a reimagining of like Anna Karenina or mm-hmm. like, but like it it feels so glamorous. It um, feels so glamorous. Like any of the scenes where she like the the old blonde woman with her cigarette and like whatever is like just like flouncing around in her gowns by the piano. She, anytime she's speaking, I'm like I'm her. <laughs> As she talks about the first time she ate poop. Yeah, like I literally am like that's what I want my job to be is to just like have like as much like terrifying sex as possible and then just like sit and narrate it to people in beautiful gowns. Well, like people just take children away to go rape them. <laughs> or I was thinking that that was like I don't know why though those little moments in particular like really horrify me because it's played off so nonchalantly. Like mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was going to be sort of like like irreversible, this sort of framed like this child is going to be raped and you're going to watch it. It's just, it's mostly just like people talking about the most horrible things. And then some guy just pulls a child and walks away. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's like off of frame or like, you don't even like see it like directly happening as like the center of action in the shot. Yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's so strange. Like how they, how they uh, kind of played off to the audience. Yeah, and it leads you into this like kind of complacency for a lot of the the runtime until the end, where they are acting as voyeurs and watching like the ultimate torture and like death of these like uh, young people. And that scene, like with the soundtrack and with the way it's like shot, like through the binoculars, it basically realizes all of like the menacing horror that's been like lurking the whole time and just explodes it in your face yeah yeah I, i'm just i'm seeing the tongue now yeah i, um, I the, it's the eye for me oh god yeah the way it like drops out of his face after is so upsetting <laughs> and even then it's still played off like it it realizes it but it's still like they're you know it's these you know jolly men just sort of like happily watching a movie almost yeah these little dandies yeah like, like uh like little like gay astes who are just like sitting around like uh like being shady with each other and then like watching twinks get like castrated uh, <laughs> i think Pasolini died before the i think the movie got banned in like several countries and he died before it like even got a like, release yeah true artist true artist yeah this is what you die with is this statement beautiful <laughs> And like Dogville, this also is like a really like polemic and political movie. Um, And I, the first time I watched it, I didn't understand that that was like such a a thing. Like, I don't know, maybe it wasn't because I didn't aesthetically understand fascism when when I was in high school when I first watched this. But going back to it after being so much more exposed, it definitely like sinks in that he is talking much more broadly about, like, the state of Earth than uh, I originally thought. Yeah, and I'm still no, like, expert in, like, Italian history, especially during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, certainly the aesthetics of fascism, like, make more, are more clear to me now than they were the years ago that I saw it. Yeah. Um, and, like you said, like, with Dogville, this feeling of ultimate powerlessness that 
just pervades like the whole whole movie and the nonchalantness with which the movie sort of plays off um just the torment of 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 youth mm-hmm. um is it, it's it's quite powerful it like dogville in that kind of similar if you can kind of liken them in some way yeah it's definitely like that i think and like in the in the powerlessness of dogville and the powerlessness here it is like kind of like that ultimate act of like sexual violence on the viewer of uh like you do feel like violated and like personally injured like watching this stuff happen especially by the end and the the point of like inflicting that kind of abjection on you when you're watching it is to like sort of illustrate just how dire the situation is like when I think mostly like his complaint is like of the the fascism and of like uh corrupt power like being what controls like your day-to-day life but it is also kind of like uh the frightening banality of everything and just like having to live a a normal life every day but seeing the inverse of that here where it's like normal life turned into this like creepy pageant and like gay parade of rape it's like there's no way out so i wonder if like Pasolini is like as nihilist as Trier is like after viewing it last time yeah i i i would assume so uh he certainly plays it off much more hokey i don't know if that's the word right word um uh, in comparison to Trier who gets very um sullen mm-hmm. um and like Montreux is much more introspective you know, it, it seems to be all coming from his own, like, his own fucked up feelings about the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas it feels like Pasolini sort of projecting it out into the the ether of yeah. how frustrated he is or how angry he is with um, the banality of, of the world's horrors, um, especially within his own country. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really stunning statement for now where there is, like, constant, like, evil and, like, failure around us at all times. And, like, now we all just, like, kind of, like, sit and accept it. Like, between our art, which doesn't challenge us in any way, like, going back to, like, Promising Young Woman is, like, a a film that only affirms at every step and actually, like, makes, like, no critical jump at you or, like, attack on you. Like, between that and just, like, the news cycle, like... When it was, like, the constant tension and anxiety and, like, hysteria around Donald Trump, like, even that's decayed into just, like, this, like, open-jawed, drooling, blank stare at, like, Joe Biden. And I kind of get, like, a similar sensation, like, watching, like, Solo, where you are just seeing all of these things that you hate and this, like, fascism and this, like, unfriendliness and horror unfolding in front of you, but, like... It's this kind of, like, you said, like, a hokey, like, very, like, aesthetic, like, kind of uh, beautiful package that you just, like, sit at and, like, stare in, like, a cow in a gaze. Yeah, I, I, like, I almost feel no different watching that than I do reading constant horror headlines of of whatever COVID news is happening in the world or, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever shooting or whatever bombing or, like, whatever happens. Like, I get the same feeling, ultimately reading those and watching those than I do watching solo. Like they're, they're no different in my mind. And I feel equally as like sickened and powerless about doing anything about it. And I think like for a movie as extravagant as solo, it, it's so um, like 
it's so honest in its own meaning. Um, and um, I don't know where I was going with that, but no, yeah. I get exactly what you're talking about. Like it is so like honest and like I, I think that because it is like such a frustrated, like kind of bitter movie out of like Pasolini who like hated Ezra Pound and like had like so many like uh just like little like bitter jabs to make out when he was making this. It's like because he was like so earnest and like edged against like the the culture or what have you, like that depiction of like decadence and these beautiful interior shots of like these like lovely european homes and like the the entire like mansion structure is like this just gorgeous very kind of like argento-esque like space but all of like that decadence like the waltz like beauty of it is like very intentional i think on his behalf to kind of make a comment about like what evil actually looks like and what depravity actually is which is like this slow march that you have no power over uh, interacting with it all except to just like kind of be vaguely pleasured by it and like of little afraid. Yeah, like I just have to sit and accept what's happening. Like ultimately, like those, the kids in the movie, I feel like I just have to accept it at a certain point and just becomes part of, you know, my daily routine. Mm-hmm. It's like the kids don't speak um, ever. Like they have like probably no. between all of them, like five lines tops. Yeah. It's the old hookers, the rapists, or like the governor or whatever their names are. Yeah. Like, it's just, yeah. It's just an onslaught of violence. Yeah. And I, I, it's impossible to understand like, just like how sickening like the violence is like when it, it really like uh, the first time that it really slaps you in the face is like when they're all naked being walked around like dogs and uh, she bites oh, yeah. the cake and there's nails in it. <gasps> <laughs> and, like that's oh. bad but at the same time too it like it goes into that like really slow scene like immediately after of like the sex narration and it isn't until like that awful like cycle of rape at the end of the movie that is is just beyond all horror that it like leaves you numb in the same way we're numb to everything now yeah by that time i'm sort of desensitized to the mm-hmm. the horror um and like I'm supposed to just move on from it and initially I do like initially when I first watched it I I did sort of kind of move on was like all right I watched that but then you know weeks went on where I could not stop thinking about it like it kept creeping back in Mm -hmm. in this this horrible looming cloud that I that is no like I said it's like no different than all the other news I hear about all the other terrible shit that happens um like it's just kind of constantly looming over me um and this this thematic thundercloud that is my life yeah yeah it's like all of all of the movies we talked about are basically just like storm clouds of like a vaguely menacing acts of terror and violence that you were powerless to stop it's like the in last house on the left it's like that goofy guitar music is like menacing in the same way like an irreversible it's that time is literally going to eat you and render everything meaningless like dogville is that your country sucks and then solo is just that evil is everywhere and we just have to sit and suffer through it it doesn't seem to suggest activism or like tweeting is gonna do anything so um i guess i'll just like watch more like twinks get their eyes cut out and like maybe that'll do something 
what you said actually it makes perfect sense and it, i think that's what what makes these movies so alluring to me is that they actually make me feel something they actually make me like think about um terrible things that happen in the world and i can't just move on from it i can't separate myself from it as much as i can just reading a headline it it artistically displays something that we should be feeling and we should be passionate about and makes you kind of shit yourself with like you know god how desensitized have i become yeah and i think that's why i've always been so obsessed with like extreme film experiences because like getting hurt by a movie and having to suffer through it is like the only way I can like feel extraordinary emotion about like the state of things like outside of like having like weird sex with strangers or whatever. Yeah. That might just be like, yeah, that might just be a uniquely like, gay man thing. Or, like we can sort of <laughs> put ourselves in these really like ex- um, extreme uh, states of being and be okay. Centaur in his dragon world. Pull down thy vanity. It is not man-made courage. Or made order. Or made grace. Pull down thy vanity. I say pull down. Learn of the green world. What can be thy place in scaled intervention or true artistry? Pull down thy vanity. down the green cask has outdone your elegance spoken by